chapter and to honor the Lord by the standing of the reading of the Word of God. Thank you if you're a visitor especially. and You have blessed us uh, this morning by being here today. Uh, it's not without effort that you've come, and we're so appreciative. It's not without effort that our church family has made their journey here today. But I'll tell you what, I really believe that if you'll set your heart for just a, a, a few moments this morning to allow God to take a familiar passage and um, not just a passage, but a journey that I'm going to take you on for a few minutes today, I think that you'll somehow be able to identify with this uh, particular journey and arrive at this particular place that we find, you know, the, the, the king. He's not the king as of yet. He's been pronounced the king, but we find David. Actually, at this time, you can call him, in essence, a fugitive. Here in the 30th chapter, the first verse, it says, And it came to pass that when David and his men were come to Ziklag, it was on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and had smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire. And, he had taken, and they had taken the women captives that were therein. They slew, though they slew not any, not either great or small, but they carried them away and they went on their way. So David and his men came to the city and behold, it was burned with fire. And their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the wife of Nabal the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abathar brought thither the ephod to David. And David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, and he being God, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. This passage of scripture is familiar to many of us as we have traced David's journey towards the kingship. It's a pivotal moment for him and I have preached from it numerous times. My own, mine and Sherry's own daughter Ashley was given 10 minutes to preach this past week at Hot Springs First Assembly and she chose this passage and her emphasis was on going into the enemy's camp and taking back all that was stolen from you. And how many of you believe that's a great word? Sometimes we need that in our own lives, about restoration. But that's not the emphasis that I have for you here today. As we go into the new year, there's something that I am personally in pursuit of. Sherry and I and our family are, in the words of the Apostle Paul, in a strait betwixt two, in a season of uncertainty. Um, we need direction for the new year. That's what I need. And I believe that if we can... Uh, connect to something that transpired in this passage of Scripture that you and I can awaken a principle that's revealed to us in this familiar passage. And it's found in these words right here, four words, bring hither the ephod. So my emphasis is not go up into the enemy's camp and take back, even though that's the end of those, four, those eight verses there, 
pursue and you'll recover all. That's not the emphasis. The emphasis for me today is, is, and for hopefully you, is as you go into this new year, that we need direction. I need direction. I need clear direction. I'm not in the position to make another mistake. Come on, I, this is sometimes you get at too precarious of a position in life, you know, that you can't make the previous mistakes that you've made in the past. You've got to arrive where the decision that you're going to make that could be monumental to you or to your family, if ever there was a moment to hear from God, now's the time, right? So that's the direction, that's the context today, direction for a new year. Let's open our hearts. Father, would you breathe this good word on us today? Would you help all of us somehow be able to get into the spirit, Father God, in essence, receive something positive this morning. Quicken this word in us today. Let it be made alive in our hearts and in our minds. It's in Jesus' name we pray in all God's children. Thank you so much. I know that many of you... Every time that we come to December 31st and then we cross over to January 1, oftentimes we find ourselves following the pattern that we have historically done with resolutions. We say things about it's a new year, it's a new you, different things, different cliches, all good. Things I'm not in any way trying to be condescending towards. But there's one thing that I have learned uh, in that context for just a few moments today is that, the, you know, the calendar can change. That means the time has changed. 2013 is gone. 2014 is upon us. So we can say the year has changed, but, but the reality is, but the season in life that you're in maybe has not changed. The season in life doesn't always correspond to a calendar date. You remember years gone by, Brian Jarrett preached from this pulpit and taught us about the difference of chronos time and kairos time and the, 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 the one that's chronos is chronological after the order of the, of the calendar and you can mark certain things according to the calendar but there are certain things that are more seasonal that you cannot necessarily predict. You can plant your, you can set a date that you're going to plant your tomatoes was the analogy that he used. But you can't set a date when you're going to harvest those tomatoes. You can, but you may be plucking a green tomato from the vine, right? Because you can't set it according to a chronological date. You have to wait for the season. Well, again, January 31st or January the 1st brought us into a new year, but you might find yourself in the same situation. And so what we're needing is new direction. What we're needing was clarification for the direction that we're on. And oftentimes what I have found is that God speaks to me many times for my life personally from the Word of God through the life of King David. Now, I know, and I've shared this principle with you, and I don't know if it's... Uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's a true phrase that would ever be repeated by anyone other than myself, biblical association. It's where I associate myself with a passage or a, a person in the scriptures in order to attempt to hear from God through a comparison, in essence, of what they go through than perhaps what I'm going through. Well, the one person that I have personally been able to identify with in my own life 
whether it be uh, as a pastor or as a husband or as a father, for whatever reason, that's been of David. And I have journeyed with him so many times. And I have read those passages of Scripture now, uh, and, and just hidden them into my heart till I can many times not necessarily quote them verbatim, but I can take you on the journey of following his life. And I'm going to today for a few minutes because I want some things to unfold before you, before we arrive at where we are at at Ziklag for just... Just a few moments, and I think that's very important. But even before I even take you briefly into this journey, I want you to know that when you read the book of 1 Samuel, and you think in your mind that that book was penned by Samuel the prophet, um, and then you think, well, that was also a part of the Old Testament, let me tell you what that is. That is the Word of God. It's what it is. It's the Word of God. And it is just as relevant to us as if we read the Gospel of Matthew today or the epistles of Ephesians and Colossians. When the Holy Spirit illuminates it, it is the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word is Jesus. And so when God speaks to me through a passage of comparison in David's life, that is as if Jesus Christ himself is speaking to my life. And yours as well. When you know he's quickened and illuminated a text for us. And so today it's important that we journey for just a few minutes so that we can somehow find our place so that we can, whoever I'm preaching to today, if the service concludes and not a single person responds and there's no one but Sherry and I standing at the front of this church saying I'm at Ziklag and I need God to bring hither the ephod, then, then I'm okay with that today. But I just know that that's where I'm at personally. I'm needing direction. I'm needing God to bring clarification in my life. David comes to us at a time in scripture in the 16th chapter of 1 Samuel at a time when Samuel himself, the prophet's heart is grieved because of Saul, because of his unwillingness to obey God even through what seemed to him to be a harsh commandment uh, in, in the 15th chapter when he failed to slaughter all the Amalekites. Isn't that odd? Oddly enough that it was the Amalekites that he failed to slaughter that was the Amalekites that later invaded Ziklag where David was dwelling. And because of that, the scripture says that the kingdom was taken from Saul and was given to David. But Samuel was mournful over before the actual, uh, you know, passing of one king to another had taken place. He was mournful, grieving for Saul when God spoke to him and said, how long were you mourned for him seeing I've rejected Saul for being king over my people Israel? He said, I've got somebody else out there. I've got somebody. And that is such an encouraging thing to us today is that sometimes we find ourselves grieving over what it used to have been when God's got something far greater than we can ever imagine. Samuel couldn't imagine anybody better than Saul. He stood head and shoulders above anybody else. But God said, well, you're mourning for that man. I got somebody on the backside of a pasture somewhere that's never been in a battle, never actually led people, but I've been preparing him since his earliest of days to take the throne. And he's after my own heart and he took the horn of oil and he went to Bethlehem and there he passed the seven sons of Jesse in front of his eyes and he chose not a single one of them and he said surely there must be one else because God has spoken to my heart. I'm hopefully reawakening some of your Sunday school training this morning and he said well there's the youngest Jesse being his father said he's the youngest he's with the sheep and Samuel said we'll not sit down to eat until we see him and they brought him forward. Scripture says he was ruddy and of a beautiful countenance and when Samuel laid his eyes upon 
him. It was a quickened word by the Holy Spirit in his heart and said, that's the one. And he took that horn of oil and he poured the oil over his head. And the Bible says that from that day forward, the Spirit of God came upon David. And I'll tell you what, a change was worked miraculously in his life. But oddly enough, God sent him back or his father sent him back to keeping sheep. And there's so many things that we can minister, uh, you know, from the anointing to the appointing. Sometimes can be a great time and space between the time God anoints you and calls you to the time that he places you not to give up, to allow God to work these things in our lives and give him ample time. Certainly David's prominence comes to all of us from when he stood on the valley of Ella. And I could have actually th- put a video or a picture from our trip. And Shane and Jojo and I, I'm not quite ready for that one just yet, Phil. But in the valley of Ella, it was when J- Jojo and, and Shane and I, I, remember we were on that tour bus this past February. And our tour guide looked over. And we didn't get the opportunity to stop. But we could look out of the side uh, window there. And we could see a valley off in the distance. He pointed and he said, that's the valley of Ella for it was there in the valley of Ella that David stood on the valley floor and he looked across at a nine foot eight inch giant with a brash boldness in his heart and a trust in God that he believed that God would deliver that giant into his hand when not a single trained soldier of all the men of Saul had the courage to leave their tent and fight Goliath. David had the courage to do so and with the anointing of God upon his life and with one rock or stone from his, uh, you know, his shepherd uh, sling that he actually defeated Goliath. The Bible says without a sword in his hand, had to draw the sword out of the scabbard of Goliath and removed his head from his carcass there uh, on, the, on that valley floor. And that launched him into national prominence. He suddenly be, went from obscurity to a place of prominence in the nation of Israel. And the Bible says that Saul, who was still reigning as king, would not allow David to go back to his home. And he brought him into his household. And the 18th chapter of 1 Samuel tells us that Jonathan, the son of Saul, and the actual heir to the throne, actually had such a passionate uh, love of God, a brotherly love put in his heart for David that the Bible says that he loved David as his own soul and they cut covenant together. They become literal blood brothers and it's a unique and a passionate story if you ever had the opportunity to to, to read it and it it kindles faith in our brothers and the relationship that we can have with people who are not born of the same parents but that God can put men and women into our lives that we are even closer to. Come on somebody, it's a powerful story. How many times I have wept in my private studies when I have thought of David and Jonathan and the relationship formed and how that God began to lift David to a place of continued prominence and he began to lead the armies of Saul and go out to battle and he would win great victories and the Bible says that God blessed David whithersoever he went. The Bible says he behaved himself wisely and he always reverenced and honored Saul as the king but it was on one fateful day that David was returning from battle and as he was returning from battle, all the women come out to meet the procession. And as the procession is coming into the town, the scripture says that the women began to, with their timbrels, began to sing and their dance and, they were, and, they, and they're rejoicing and they say, Saul, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. You know that story. When that happened, a bitter jealousy and envy gripped Saul and he could no longer look at David the same. And twice in his own house, he took his own spear and tried to kill David by pinning him against the wall and God miraculously preserved David's life. And there was a fateful day outside of field, outside of where they were dwelling. 
that particular season that David determined that it was no longer safe. Do you all remember that? It's in the 21st chapter of the book of Samuel. It was no longer safe for him to dwell in the household of Saul any longer and he would be forced to flee. And upon his fleeing, the scripture says the first place, and this is a critical moment in our story before we ever get to the first Samuel chapter 30. And I'm just taking you on a, on a journey. I'm not going to have any points today. There's not point A or point B or one or two. I'm just following a journey so that by the time we arrive at 1 Samuel 30, we understand the complexity of that moment so that we can identify with the need for direction in our lives. Come on, somebody. And so in 1 Samuel 21, when he's forced to flee, he leaves hurriedly because he doesn't have time. to. He can't go get anything. He didn't have time to kiss his wife. He didn't have time to say goodbye. He just had to leave because Saul would be uh, pursuing him. Well, the first place that he went to was Nob. And there at Nob, the scripture tells us, was the location of the tabernacle. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was not there. I don't have time to elaborate upon that. But the tabernacle and all the altar and the worship and the sacrifice and he is met there by Ahimelech the priest and Ahimelech the priest he actually confers with David and David is hungry and he says I don't have he said I left without a sword in my hand I left without provisions I'm on a mission he kind of didn't tell the whole truth I'm on a mission from the king and I don't have time to, to get him provisions it was that passage of scripture there where he receives the showbread it was that passage that Jesus himself even alluded to remember when his own disciples walked through a, a field and took grain in their hands and ate it and the Pharisees saw it and said why did they eat without washing their hands why did they defy the traditions of our father and Jesus pointed back to David when he went to Ahimelech the priest and he desired David or Jesus called it Abathar which is his son which we'll talk about more in a few moments and he desired the showbread and he was given the showbread or the shoe bread that was taken off of the, uh, the table inside the holy place that was uh, not, not lawful for anybody other than the priest to eat but because David was in such need the priest gave it to him and he was able to eat but now the scripture says also that David requested a weapon and Ahimelech said you know what I don't have any weapon except for one he said I've got the sword of Goliath it's wrapped in a cloth and if you read this later he said it's behind the ephod and so he goes he said David said there's none like it and so he gave him the sword of Goliath and listen to what David did when he gained that sword of Goliath for whatever reason David David thought that it was wise to go into the land of the Philistines, which the Philistines gave us Goliath and are sore displeased over his defeat on the valley of Elah. And now David arrives in the city of Gath into the hometown of the king on the hometown of Goliath with Goliath's sword in his hand to take refuge. Does that make any sense at all? And so... He arrives there thinking he's done the right thing. How many of you have ever had an experience in your life where you think you've done the right thing? Only to quickly look back and look around and say, I'm not for sure if I should be here. And he begins to hear people talking. Is not this the one, David, that they sing that he's slain his ten thousands? Let's take him and kill him. And David learns about it and the scripture says he's brought before Achish who is the king and David knows he's got one chance. I could uh, quote from uh, the old uh, Reba McIntyre song there. This is your one chance, fancy. Don't let me down right here. 
He got one chance to get out. And so he begins to let his spittle fall on his mouth and on his, on his chin and drip down on his beard. He starts acting like a fool, scratching the wall. And the reason why he's doing this is because in those ancient cultures, if you were deranged of any type, you were, it was determined that it was the result of a supernatural influence and therefore you couldn't harm him. And so he, he, he played the fool in the presence of the king till Achish was frustrated and said, why have you brought this madman into my presence? And he said, get him out of here. And the Bible says this, 1 Samuel chapter 22, that David escaped and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And there at the cave of Adullam, the scripture says that men and women, their families, including David's own mother and father, began to resort to him where he becomes a captain over them. Everybody who was in distress, everybody that was discontented, everybody that was in debt, everybody that was looking for a new day, everybody that was tired of the old lineage of Saul, everybody that was tired of following the pattern of the past where they were no longer seeking after the heart of God. Everybody that was looking for something different resorted to David and he became a captain. I don't know about you, but that's where I'm at in my life today. I'm going to let go of 2013 because I want something new. I want something fresh. I want something vibrant. I want to become more than I've ever been. I want to do more for God than I've ever done. I want to set goals that are higher than I've ever ascribed to reach. Come on, somebody. A new day. People were coming out to David and saying it's a new day. But with all of this transpiring, Saul's bitter jealousy just continues to mount. And a unique moment occurs in the story when Saul learns that David had first fled to Nob, to Himelech the priest. This is where, and I only have a few more moments to build up this journey or the story, but it's important that we do so. And perhaps right here is a critical moment in the story that when when um, when when Saul learns that David is gone to Ahimelech the priest. He determines evil against the house and the lineage of Ahimelech and his sons. And Doeg the Edomite, and I don't have time, actually slaughters the priest at the command of the king. Even the servants of Saul would refuse. They said, we will not touch the God's anointed. But Doeg the Edomite, and you have to read it and put it all together for the sake of time. We cannot go there. Willingly drew his sword. And he killed, I believe, several hundred of those that descended out of the priesthood, the scripture says, that wore a linen ephod. But one man escaped. The direct descendant of Ahimelech is Abathar. He's the next high priest. He escapes from the wrath of Saul, and he finds his way to David. And the Bible says, though, but that he doesn't come there empty-handed. That the thing, he didn't have time to grab anything. David had already secured the sword of Goliath, but there was one thing that he grasped, and it was the ephod. And it's very important for you to understand this today because God's going to unlock a spiritual mystery to you in a few minutes. And if you miss what I'm about to tell you right now, you're going to miss the, the context of the whole sermon. This is very important. There's a spiritual mystery that's woven to this passage of Scripture. And it's in 1 Samuel 23 that when, uh, at the conclusion of 1 Samuel 22 when David told Abathar, he said, you abide with me, you'll be safe. And in 1 Samuel 23, like in the second verse, and if we can put that Scripture up there, uh, if we're able to, I want you to see that very quickly. 
quickly. David inquires of the Lord. It says saying. So, so from the moment that Abathar arrives, we now begin to say, see that David is inquiring of the Lord. Previously, he's not necessarily inquired of the Lord. He's just impulsively went to where he thought was the right place. That's how he arrived at Gath. That's how he was in the presence of Achish with the sword of Goliath. But now, some measure of maturity is coming and he's inquiring of the Lord. The fourth verse, he's inquiring of the Lord, I think it says. David's inquiring of the Lord yet again and the Lord answers him. Now here's where the mystery begins to unfold. The ninth verse, I believe it is. Or the next verse that I gave you, Phil, I can't remember which one it is in particular, but I think it's the ninth verse. It says the same words that we reread later in the 30th verse and it says, bring hither the ephod. Bring hither the ephod. Bring hither the ephod. You say, well, pastor, clarify for me what is that, that, that thing that, that Abathar, the young priest that is now the high priest upon the death of his father, escaped the destruction of Doeg the Edomite. What is it that he carried and he met David with and why is it it's so important? Well, let's ta- let me show you a picture image here for just a moment. So I want you to see this. You have to understand this in its context. Now, First of all, there are, we must differentiate between a common ephod that many priests would wear, even David himself. Do you remember, jump forward in time to 2 Samuel chapter number 6 when David is attempting to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem? Remember how he's dressed? The Bible says he's dressed only in a linen a linen ephod. Well, there's a difference between a common ephod that those in the priesthood might wear and the ephod of the high priest. And the Bible doesn't tell us that he secured the priesthood or the high priest ephod, but we can presume that it was the priesthood or the high priest ephod. This is a picture image of what the high priest of Israel would look like. And you can see above the blue robe is the next smaller, it looks like almost a skirt but it, or, or, or a, uh, an apron, but it actually goes over over and actually comes down the back. It's kind of like a sleeveless apron that goes over the front and then comes down on the back. And that actually is the high priest. It has four, five separate colors in it. It's recorded in Exodus chapter number 28. Four of the colors are the same colors that the tabernacle was made out of. The only color that differentiated is gold is added to that color scheme as well. But the unique thing about this ephod is it distinguished the high priest in his service in the whole Holy place and his service, especially in the most holy place on the Day of Atonement. But unique to the ephod, though, was also the breastplate of judgment. You look a little higher, you'll see a nine by nine inch pouch. It's actually a cloth pouch that is sewed on three sides, open on the top, and there are actual 12 stones. Those 12 stones represent the 12 tribes of Israel, for engraved on every stone is one of the names of the 12 tribes. And the scripture tells us back in the book of Exodus that when they would actually when they actually made these garments that what God said to do is he said I want you to put something inside the breastplate. I want you to put it's called the Urim and the Thummim. You've heard of it some of you in the past. Now people are unsure actually what that was. The scripture doesn't clarify. Let me tell you what many believe that it was. Some believe that the Urim and the Thummim was actually two stones that were placed inside the pouch and that they actually might illuminate that when the priest was inquiring for the, before the Lord uh, for, any, for the king, he would look in the pouch and one stone represented a no and one stone represented a yes. 
Others believe that the stones on the breastplate themselves would actually illuminate and God would spell out through the names of the 12 tribes of Israel by illuminating a Hebrewic letter on the stone. Others believe that the stones would not necessarily illuminate, but it was a black stone and a white stone put in the pouch and that the priest, when, he would, when the king would inquire, it was called the breastplate of judgment. So when the king would come to the high priest and say, I'm, I really need counsel right now. I need direction. I don't know what to do. Should we go to war or should we not go to war? He would open his pouch and like casting lots, he would reach his hand in and he would pull out a stone. If he opened the stone and it was the black stone, it might be yes. If it's the white stone, no, or vice versa. History doesn't tell. The scriptures don't tell us. We've only formulated just a few ideas. But the context is this, is that when the high priest had the ephod on, he had a direct line to the voice and the mind of God. It was not divination. It was not enchantment. It was not soothsaying. It was not fortune telling. It was not crystal balls. It was not uh, witches and warlocks uh, because all of that had been condemned by God. It was prayerfully joining your heart together with God's high priest. uh, And David, that's why we read the words, David inquired of the Lord. David joined his faith to the faith of the high priest and said, I'm, I need direction right now. I need an answer. That's what we see recorded in 1 Samuel chapter number 23 when David begins to inquire of the Lord. What we're now understanding is, is that Abathar would shroud himself with the ephod and that they would pray together and then they would say, Oh God, should we go here? And God would show him when he reached his hand in the, in the pouch and extract the stone and God would say, Go. Or if he said, if it came out, he said, no, then you don't go. And that's an exciting revelation. Come on, somebody, of the mind and the will and the heart of God. And that's why now in 1 Samuel chapter 23, we see David. From the moment that Abathar arrives, he begins to inquire of the Lord. How many say, good move, David? Good move, David. Now you can make better decisions, right? Oddly enough, though, I don't have time to take you into the 24th, 25th, and the 26th chapters, but I'm going to touch one that's on the 27th and jump right to the 30th, and then I'm going to bring us right to a narrowing place where the mail comes to your address today for just a few moments in concluding the sermon today. Oddly enough, the 27th chapter stands out in 1 Samuel because in the 27th chapter we find David repeating the previous mistake that he had made. David, frustrated from the last few months or possibly years of being a fugitive before King Saul, he actually said there's but a day's breath, or there's just a breath between me and death because of Saul. He said, I will one day perish at the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than to do what? Than to escape. Where? Back to the land of the Philistines. No record of an inquiry. No bring hither the ephod. Just frustration. Most of the poor decisions that you and I have ever made in our life is when we didn't seek the counsel of God. We didn't seek the counsel of men and women of God. We didn't put our hearts in unity with our spouses. We just drew out there in an impulsive moment of the flesh and we made a decision that we thought was the best thing to alleviate the pressure of the moment. Let me tell you, just getting out of the pressure of the moment is not always the best thing for your life you can leap out of the frying pan into the, into the fire. And David, that had barely escaped 
Job said by the skin of a man's teeth, David had barely escaped out of the Philistines' land just a few short chapters earlier, now gathers his whole clan up with 600 men plus their wives and their children, and they go into the land of the Philistines. Now, Achish uh, is agreeable to him, allows him to stay, gives him a small village in the country per David's request. And for the next 16 months, David just is a roving band. He's going into other uh, nations, and he's bringing war upon them and taking spoil and, and, and all kinds of things. Until the 28th and 29th chapter, when the Philistines go to war against Israel, David and all of his men mount up, and they're going to head off to war. When the Philistine lords see David and his men in the army to fight against Israel, and putting it in our language today, they said, there's something wrong with this picture. When we go to battle, they're not going to think they're Philistines. They're going to remember they're Israelites, and they're going to turn the swords on us. And so then the king is forced to send David back to the countryside town that, God, that, he had, that Achish had given him of Ziklag. That's where we arrive 1 Samuel 30, during that short time period that he had ridden out three or four days to go to battle with the Philistines at the conclusion of 16 months of being in the land, in that short period of time, he comes back and as he draws near the city, he sees smoke where the city used to be. He doesn't see walls. He doesn't see villages or a village thatched roofs. He doesn't see anything but rubble and smoke and they rush David and his 600 men to find that in their absence, the Amalekites had invaded from the south and had burned the city and had taken all of their families captive. But remember this, at the time, David doesn't know his wife or children are still yet alive. Can you imagine that moment? Sherry and I was at a church service in the, uh, uh, January the 10th of 2001 on a Wednesday night service. As we returned home, our house was engulfed in flames. But we knew our family was safe because we were all together at church. But David arrives back. He doesn't know anything about his family. His sons could have been massacred. His wives could have been raped. The Bible says every man felt the same anguish. Can you imagine the heaviness of that moment? Can you all bear with me for just a moment? Can we attach to that? That's a very difficult moment that David arrives at. And when you have that moment when you're in that such, a, such an anguish moment and you, and you sob and you weep and you're frustrated and ultimately, you know, the reality of that moment, everybody, whenever you've had a failure moment, every, whenever you've had a, a, a distress moment, often we look for a cause, don't we? Even, even in that moment when, when, when we really ought to be just trying to deal with the grief and the sorrow, we're looking for a course of blame. I'm sure inwardly David is thinking there's nobody to blame but me because this is the second time I've been here. I was here months ago and God got me out by his grace. I didn't inquire of the Lord. I didn't ask to bring the ephod. I didn't do anything. I just came in an impulsive response to the pressure of my situation. And here I am. And now it's cost me my wife and my children and possibly even the kingship. 
that he was awaiting the day that he would be made the king of Israel. And to add insult to injury or to make matters worse, some of the men that were in David's army began to think in their minds as they were going through the trauma of the loss of their own children and the loss of their wives when they realized it's not their fault either, it's David's fault. And some men are actually reaching their hand down into the soil of Ziklag and digging stones out of it because they're going to catch David and they're going to stone him because he is to blame. And that's the passage of Scripture where in that context there is a divine principle that every one of us have to allow God to write it on the tablet of our hearts. Because in that moment, if ever there was a time, I'm sure David wanted to flee, that was the moment. If ever there was a time David wanted to say, somebody bring me a horse because I'm out of here, I'm leaving, I'm going to escape the way that I did, I'm sure it was at that moment. But the Scripture reveals to us a divine principle that every one of us have to capture if we're we're ever going to find God taking us to a new place in our Christian experience. David calmed himself in the midst of accusation and in the midst of the threatenings of his own men who were uh, pronouncing mutiny upon him. And the Bible says that David encouraged himself in the Lord. Now I know when you're frustrated you want to call the, you want to call the prayer line. And I know that when you are agitated you've got a lot of things that you want to do to alleviate you of that agitation. But let me tell you one of the greatest things that you can learn to do as a maturing believer in Christ is have a calming moment in the presence of God and begin to remind yourself of who he is and who you are in Christ Jesus. The Bible doesn't tell us how he encouraged himself in the Lord, but let me tell you, if he played the madman in the presence of Achish, I just believe in my heart of hearts that David got himself alone, perhaps just a stone's throw away from the men that were plotting to take his life and David began to twirl and began to dance and David began to sing and David began to remind him himself of Jehovah God, the great king, the righteous one, the judge of all judges, the king of all kings. He was the Lord. There's none like him. God, you are. You got to get to a place in your life where you learn to encourage yourself in Christ. Glory to God. You'll never see a change. You'll never learn to get new direction in your life till you just learn to say, God, I'm going to settle myself in you. Things are not where I want them to be. Things are not going the way I'd want them to go. But God, I'm hidden in Christ, God. I'm so thankful you have commended your love before me that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. You broke down the middle wall of partition between me and the Jewish community. Father God, I used to be a foreigner and a stranger, but now I am a child of God. I'm of the household of saints, God. I am a son or a daughter of Abraham. You're my father, my spirit. You have sent your spirit to my heart crying, Father, Father, you have given your angels charge concerning me. You will bear me up in their hands lest I dash my feet against the stones. When I was being emptied from the inside out on Friday night, uttered out of my mouth was by his stripes. I am healed. You are Jehovah Rapha. You are my Lord, the healer. Whatever situation, whatever plot you find yourself in, you got to encourage yourself in the Lord and who he is and his goodness towards your life. Glory to God. That's a good word. That's a lot better preaching than y'all shouting this morning, but that's okay. I've journeyed with this so many times in my life to bring you to the conclusion from here. Bring hither the ephod. Bring hither the ephod. Bring hither the ephod. After calming himself in the presence of God. Darrell, would you join me today to close this morning? 
bring me hither the ephod. David brings the ephod in the hands of Abathar. And he seeks God for counsel. And I don't know why, but I just felt like as we go into the new year, that it was my responsibility as the pastor to bring you to the place where those of you that are saying the calendar date has changed, but my season seems unchanged. I need direction from God. Come on, somebody. I need direction from God. I need His direction. Let me remind you today that what I see in the ephod, let me, let me, let me make that, that, that shadow a little bit more of a revelation to us today. The ephod was worn on the breast of the high priest. And so in essence, the king would go to the high priest and the high priest would inquire on his behalf. Now they would join their faith because we read that David actually spoke and he inquired of the Lord. But let me tell you, who is our high priest today? It's not Abathar. Come on, we have a high priest today. Let me tell you what the Bible says about your high priest today. He's touched by the feeling of your infirmity. He's moved by your situation. He cares for you today. Hear that today. It's very important. Hear that today. Jesus Christ is our high priest. The Bible says he ever lives. He ever lives to make intercession for you and I. We can come to him at any season of our life and we can cling to him and say, Lord Jesus, I need your help. I need your direction. I don't have the answers. I may be back at Ziklag. I may be in the land of the Philistines, a place you delivered me from months ago. And of my own impulsive behavior, I found myself right back. Because that's where I find myself. I find myself sitting in the same seat that I vacated some time back without counsel and without wisdom to pursue something and now finding myself in a straight betwixt two and I need the wisdom of God and the counsel of God. I'm just so glad that God is gracious to us. Jojo said it earlier today when he quoted from Jesus when he said, ask and you'll receive. Well, that's the word to us. Come on, bring hither the ephod today. Bring hither the ephod. Lord Jesus, I need your counsel today. Let me tell you very quickly in closing, I want to tell you how God can speak to you. The reason why I drew from this passage today is I want you to know, we're, sometimes I believe we're making it too hard. God wants to speak to us. Come on. We don't have to dial a 1-900 number and speak to Madam so-and-so. God wants us to discern his voice. God wants to order our steps. How many believe that if he made it where David could speak to a priest who would reach his hand in a pouch and determine his direction, that he wants to bless our steps and give us direction so that we can confidently move in life knowing that we're in the will of God. Come on, isn't that a great place to be? That when you're moving in life, know it. God has quickened this in my heart. So, well, Pastor, how can God speak to you? He can speak to you by a prophetical word. That's why I'm thankful to be a part of a church that believes in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Come on, I'm the beneficiary of prophetical words. I am the beneficiary of prophetical words spoken in me and about my life as a young man. And I'm living them out in my own life, in my own testimony, where somebody had a gift and used that gift, cast a word over my life, and now many years later I'm seeing it come to pass. Thank God for prophetical words. How many believe in dreams and visions? God can speak to you from a dream and vision. Right, he can. Let me tell you, don't ever fail to consider godly counsel. God speaks through godly counsel. I believe oftentimes the word of wisdom can be ministered at an altar, but the word of wisdom can happen across the pastor's desk. The word of wisdom can happen when you're visiting with someone that you know is sensitive to the things of God. 
and that you're seeking counsel from them, God can give you a word of wisdom, direction for your life in that moment. Don't ever, don't ever fail to heed godly counsel. How many of you know there's safety in the multitude of counsel? So remember that. You say, well, how can God speak to me? He can speak to me by a prophetical word. He can speak to me by a multitude of godly counsel. He can. He speaks to us by unity in our spouses. If you're married... Let me tell you real quickly, if what for Sherry and I, when we make decisions, you're not Sherry, you're Alyssa, I'm sorry. What we've got to do, see, when we're praying is we've got to be in agreement. How can two walk together unless they're in agreement? Come on. How, if, if I'm saying one thing and she's saying another, how can God bless that? Husbands and wives have to come together. So there's power in the unity of a husband and wife in a couple. God will speak to. Sometimes a, a husband's wanting to do one thing and a wife is reserved. Sometimes a wife is wanting to do another and it takes them coming together and determining the will of God. Am I making sense for y'all today? I just want you to know that when you cry out to God in a few minutes and say, God, bring hither the ephod, there can be many ways that he brings that wisdom to your life today. I believe in a quickened word. I believe that there are times in my life that I've prayed and said, God, show me something in the Word that's going to direct my path. Now, I don't want it to become witchcraft. I don't want it to be soothsaying. I don't want it to be where I'm just doing this. Oh, God. And there's my answer. I don't want it to be that. But if I pray diligently and I'm sensitive to the Holy Spirit, then if God can cause a high priest to reach his hand down here and pull a stone out then the Holy Spirit can certainly illuminate one of these words in here and cast a direction for my life. And He can cast one for your life as well. So there are many ways that God can give direction for our lives. But we have to ask Him and we have to seek Him. He gives us peace. The Bible says, let the peace of God rule in your heart. If you have peace in your heart about the will of God, then many times that's your indicator that this is the direction for you. I mean, no, peace passes all understanding sometimes. It just calms us. Did you know the word rule where it says, let the peace of God rule in your heart in the Greek? That's actually from a sporting term, and it's almost like an umpire. Jojo, you remember in the days of of baseball when that person slid, or not slid, but ran past first base, and the umpire had to make a decision. Is 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 he out or is he safe? That ruling that would take place. He's safe or he's out. Whichever one in that moment, that's what the peace of God does. It rules in your heart. When it rules in your heart, it's your direction that God's giving you. So God can speak to us. My words for you today are the words of David. I think to start this new year, we should just arrive at the place where we say, God, bring hither the ephod. I need your counsel. I need your wisdom. I, don't, I can't afford this year to be a year of previous mistakes or mistakes that like I've made in the past. This has to be a year when I get things right. Amen? Our heads are bowed and our eyes closed this morning in the presence of God. I don't know the time. I've not looked. It's 1223. I preached for about 45 minutes today and I sent out a